0: Okay, maybe I don't have the best solution. Do you know what? Maybe someone will come in and tell me about a solution. That's a good thing. I'll learn something. The perfect is the enemy of the good. Oh, I don't have the best solution to this problem. Therefore, what I write is rubbish. That's not true. Working code is good code. And that is something I learned.
1: Hello and welcome to the Scrimba podcast. On this weekly show, I speak with successful developers about their advice on how to learn to code and get your first junior developer job. I'm Alex, and today I'm joined by James Marriott, a Scrimba student who recently got their first junior developer job. He joined us today to tell us exactly how he did it and what the interview process looked like. Before learning to code, James was an English teacher and project manager, which is quite a world away from what he's doing right now, working professionally as a developer, building out web applications with JavaScript. If you're wondering what made James learn to code and change career, Well, like many people changing career actually, he wasn't too happy with his current job. And when the pandemic and the lockdowns came about, that afforded him some time and breathing room to retrain and learn to code at the age of 42. Now, I can't wait to get into the conversation with James. I think you're going to learn a lot, but in particular, this is an insightful conversation about how to get a job in tech by demonstrating not only your coding skills, but your personality and culture fit as well. There's a lot of practical advice in this episode. Something a bit unorthodox but also kind of impressive is that James would send out 10 applications a day and to stay positive, he sets up a Gmail filter to automatically delete any emails from companies with the word unfortunately in it. I just hope he didn't get an email from some quirky hiring manager saying, unfortunately, you're going to have to see us again. You've got the next round. The actual funny thing about getting a coding job is that coding and doing well in coding interviews isn't necessarily the same thing. The questions are a bit contrived and there's someone looking over your shoulder, which adds pressure. Unfortunately, this kind of caught James by surprise during his first ever job interview and he choked it, but determined not to repeat that mistake again. He had the brilliant idea to livestream himself coding, doing JavaScript challenges for weeks, just to feel more comfortable with this idea that someone's looking over your shoulder, and as is always a good idea, become a better developer in the process. You are listening to the scrimba Podcast. Let's get into it.
0: So when I was a child, I actually studied programming at school and i loved it i did computing and this is 25 years ago the languages we were using then i don't think javascript was even invented so i was doing stuff like bbc basic and some other you know kind of simple languages and i really enjoyed it however it was very much seen at the time as a kind of toy thing and not really much of a career unless you were going to go and work for ibm and So I didn't pursue it. And then I had a whole different career for about 20 years, project management, essentially not in the tech sector. And then about three or four years ago, I started to think about what I was doing and how I was not particularly enjoying what I was doing. And I began to start looking at some development stuff, you know, began picking up some courses and free code camp and that sort of thing. When the pandemic came, my work situation changed, and I had more time to spend actually becoming a developer. And then that's when I decided I really wanted to make this a serious full-time thing. Was coding on your mind all those years? My motivation in life is often I get satisfaction from creating things. I like making stuff. I've always been kind of creative. I've always enjoyed making, you know, little stories or music, writing songs, that kind of stuff. I enjoy making stuff. That is the bit I like about coding more than anything. I'm not someone who loves algorithms and the intellectual problems. And I've met plenty of people. I work with them now and they're like that, and I'm not like that. I'm someone who enjoys making stuff that people can use. And that is where it it came for me.
1: I really appreciate you making that point because I think that great developers can come from anywhere, and we all have different motivations. How did you go about deciding what specifically to learn? And, you know, once you decided, what resources did you turn to?
0: I began with looking at what people were doing in terms of creating web applications. And, you know, then I started with HTML and CSS and then started moving to some JavaScript. And of course, then naturally the frameworks, JavaScript frameworks came along. I felt at home once I began using those things, there were a lot of technical challenges for me personally but once I began to start making little interactive games and stuff that people could use and I could send to my friends and and then I thought this is not a million miles away from stuff that is produced commercially and Now, hopefully, I can bridge the gap between having some fun making little static websites or whatever it is with some small amount of JavaScript to actually making much more fully featured things which people will enjoy and use
1: there's a lot of uh, courses and books and newsletters, podcasts, conference record, like there's so much information out there. You know, it sounds like you had a good idea about what order to learn things in at least, but yeah, like how did you close this gap between being a hobbyist and being a professional?
0: Yeah. So I began with some of the free courses, like many people do YouTube, free code camp, that sort of stuff. And also at one point, I'm not sure if still in business, but Udacity, I did one of the little nano degrees with them and that was a beneficial experience, but it was a bit lacking. Then I found Scrimba, which I can't remember exactly when. I suppose a couple of years ago. I don't know when the front-end developer career path was launched. I found Scrimba just before that. So I started with some of the courses that Scrimber offered, the free stuff, and then came the front-end developer career path. And once that was launched, I signed up for that, and uh, you know it was remarkable value because I paid like a ton of money for Udacity beforehand, which I didn't feel was great value in terms of what I got back. However, once I moved to Scrimba, I was paying a fairly small monthly fee from my point of view, and the valuable thing that I got was the community i love the technology i love the scrims i love being able to to do interactive code within the browser that's all fantastic particularly when you're not familiar with vs code and like setting up your own environment it's just brilliant that you can get started straight away but what was most valuable was the community and i connected with tom when he was a student and Tom's now a Scrimber uh, instructor and uh, course leader. Yeah, that's right. So we connected, as I say, a couple of years ago, and I learned a lot from him and our, like, personal relationship was very beneficial for me and you know we were swapping code back and forth saying what's going on here, what's the problem, can you help me mate and yeah no problem, oh, I think you need this and like doing that pair coding stuff together, that is really valuable and not just him but many others within the Scrimmer community giving feedback and support and so forth, that to me was the most valuable thing particularly you know, I was basically me, my computer in a basement trying to figure this stuff out, trying to get a new career and And there's like this whole world out there of people in Scrimba that were supporting me and making it possible because it's hard going, sort of slogging away by yourself. But when you've got people out there supporting you, it makes a huge difference.
1: We launched the Frontend Developer Career Path in the summer of 2020. So that kind of dates when you started at Scrimba which if I remember right, was in the middle of the global lockdowns that were happening, or at least there was a period towards the end of that year. Many people describe that as a very lonely and uncertain time. How
0: did you reflect on it? Absolutely. I I mean, the the work I was doing then was mostly education focused. So I was doing a lot of teaching online, but again, quite lonely in that respect. I wasn't engaging with people physically in a room on a day-to-day basis. And that was very, I Isolating. However, I also found that okay, this is a period which is time limited, which is an amazing opportunity to learn something new and transition and do something that I really want to do, but I just haven't had have the time or the money or the focus, mainly the time, to actually invest in that. So then I got that opportunity during the pandemic, as I saw it, to work through and learn a heck of a lot of stuff connected with development. That, for me, was amazing to have the community, which I found with Scrimba. And I think without the community, I probably would have given up because it is very hard not to get any feedback on what you're doing, not to get help when you're kind of banging your head against the wall. And it takes someone with incredible personal motivation, I think, to keep going month after month, particularly when you hit bugs that you just can't fix and you don't know why. And that support was massive.
1: And you had a job while you were learning to code as well, which uh, it just made makes everything so much more stressful, I think, because you don't have the liberty of unlimited time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I had a job. I had children. I had a lot of commitments. Hopefully you still have children. (laughs) 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 I have children. And at the time I had children that needed a lot of care and attention. They were younger. They're a little bit older now. I mean, I'm a bit older myself. I'm 44 now. And that was part of a challenge, you know, full-time job kids so forth you know if you're 21 and you've got 18 hours a day to spend on coding and learning and building communities that's great but when you've got a short period of time every day and you've got to make it work and you're doing a full-time job as you know i was a freelancer teaching and i was getting paid hourly so my hours were valuable and that was also an awful lot to juggle Hello!
2: If you're looking to change careers but you're afraid of learning a new skill as an adult, Then you should check out our interview with Quincy Larson. Quincy is the founder of Free Code Camp. He's also a self-taught developer and a career changer. Recently, he spoke to the Scrimba podcast about why learning to code as an adult might be easier than you think. Adults can actually learn way more efficiently and effectively than kids can because they've got this big existing associative network. The older I get, the more efficient I get at learning. Any sufficiently motivated person can learn to code. I didn't start coding until I was 31 years old. I was a school director and I just wanted to make our school more efficient. I remember very many people telling me, you're running this school and everything's great. You should just keep doing what you're doing. And you know what? Like If I had stayed in that school that I was running, COVID hit and you know the school went under. I'm gonna have to climb down this hill if I want to climb up that bigger hill, but it's worth it. I'm linking this episode in the show notes.
1: I'll be right back with James in just a minute. But first, Jan the Producer and I wanted to remind you that this is the 91st episode of The Scrimber Podcast. We're well on our way to 100, but more importantly, there is a massive backlog of incredible experts and successful junior developers for you to learn from, which you can check out while you wait for the next episode. We also want to ask that you share this episode if you're enjoying it. The other thing, Jan, is I'm not sure if everybody understands how the podcast and how we alternate episodes works.
2: Well, we are a weekly show and there's a new episode every Tuesday. We haven't missed a Tuesday for a very long time. I think I joined the Screamer podcast in like April of 2021. So uh, that's a lot of weeks. And I think we plan for at least as many. So if you subscribe, you'll get a new show in your feed every week and it'll be really insightful and uplifting. And the way we do that is by alternating between different types of guests. So one week we talk to a recently hired new developer, like James, and then next week we talk to an industry expert. One week from now, you guessed it, it's an industry expert. Alex Lee, also known as Tech Rally, will be on the show. He's a front end engineer at Amazon, and he also helps aspiring developers break into the tech industry. I studied mechanical engineering in college. I really wanted to work on cars or airplanes.
0: Funny enough, after I graduated, it was really hard to find a job. And it came to a certain point where I just took any job that was willing to take me. I somehow was coding a little bit here and there, trying to figure out if that's what I wanted to do. But doing part-time coding while working full-time was just like really, really difficult. So I made a kind of like an internal business decision to try to do a coding bootcamp. I was able to eventually find a job three months after that.
2: That's next week on the Screamer podcast. And now we're back to the interview with James.
1: Changing career in your 40s, it always strikes me as such a courageous thing to do would you describe it as an advantage or a disadvantage breaking into tech later in life after already having one career?
0: If you'd asked me six months ago or even 12 months ago, I would say absolutely disadvantage without hesitation. However, in the company I'm working for now, I'm already seeing the soft skills that I have from project management experience being very useful. And some of the things such... I thought I'd never sort of think about again have become very relevant as my company's kind of doing a bit of uh, internal reorganization and we're pivoting a bit. So it was surprising to me that those things are valuable when I hadn't really thought about that.
1: But it's just like you described, learning to code, full stop, takes a huge amount of perseverance and dedication. And, you know, if you go to university or something, there's so many extrinsic motivators, right? Like you've already invested all this money into your degree. You don't want to drop out now. You also have the benefit of a support network because you're in the foxhole together with everybody. And maybe there's an element of like social pressure there where like you can compare your grades to others and get a sense of how you're doing. Say you're self-taught, you have none of this. You really have to set your own direction and self-motivate. I think doing it a little bit later in life after you've already had a career only makes it harder in some ways because, well, you might think you're starting from scratch and sort of have nothing to show for the previous stuff you did. But from what you're teaching me, it sounds like that isn't actually
0: true. I would say everything that you've experienced does contribute to where you are today. One of the things which I found a little surprising is that my motivation, like my work motivation, is very, very high in that I will just keep going until I fix something. Now it may take me a lot longer than someone with, you know, years of experience. However, I am sort of doggedly pursuing that. And I have that kind of mindset that I will not let a problem defeat me and that I will get to. The bottom of it, I do think that that is a valuable asset, and I suspect from being in years of work that that is something which I have got. You know, what you've got to do is just get the job done, and sometimes that means you know personal sacrifice. It means waking up early. It means doing the difficult stuff. It means not doing things you want to do. And actually the years of sort of slog in various jobs have been a benefit in that sort of, let's say, focused attitude to work, which not everybody has in their like early 20s. And I think perhaps people who are a little bit older, perhaps in the 40s, whatever. They have invested that time in jobs and whatnot that they know um, that they know what commitment gets the job done. And I think also you're a little less personally focused like this is not about me this is about The job, the product, this is about supporting the company, this is about supporting my colleagues, this is about getting the result we need to do. And it's not so much about skills, but it is perhaps more about experience that gives you that understanding of the world is not how you want it to be. But, you know, if you can make things work within whatever paradigms you're working within, then that is going to be very good for you personally and good for whichever company you're working in. That kind of experience
1: and I think maturity you're describing certainly comes with time. Where does the drive come from? Is that like a learned thing or do you think there's an element of
0: personality to it as well? I'd say personality is crucial, absolutely crucial. The company where I'm working at the moment, they hired me not because I was the best coder. In fact, probably wasn't the most experienced applicant for the role. And they spent quite a long time, in fact, we had about five interviews, I think, before we were, we were done and I am tired. basically examining whether or not I was suitable for the company. Because the way we work in our company is a very flat structure. Everyone needs to take personal responsibility. We don't have managers sort of doling out tasks. We work collaboratively and that means that people have to be highly focused in terms of personal motivation, able to, you know, do self-starting get tasks done, ask for help when needed, but also get on with stuff by themselves as well. So they hired me because they saw I could do those things. And I had experience there, not necessarily that you know I was the most brilliant coder. That made more of a difference for me getting hired, I think, than any other factor.
1: While we're on the subject of getting hired and, you know, succeeding at the job interview, can you tell us more about your approach to finding your first developer job? It normally starts with a question, which we've all asked ourselves at some point. Am I ready to apply at all or should I keep studying and apply later?
0: I don't think there's any harm in applying for jobs, even if you're not ready. I think it's a good experience for you. There's going to be a lot of rejection unless you're very lucky or you're in a new unique position, the reality is it's a numbers game. There's a lot of jobs and there's a lot of people looking for jobs. There's gonna be a lot of rejection and you can't take it personally. And the sooner you learn to not take it personally, the better. So you may as well get that done while you're still not ready. And then it's like practicing coding. You do certain things badly at first. That's inevitable. Anyone who ever learned to do anything well started off by doing it badly. And the same goes for applying for jobs you'll do that badly too. That's also a skill that needs to be learned. And gradually I finessed that skill. At the time I was applying for jobs and yeah, I was getting disheartened with the rejections at times. Oh man, it happens. Yeah. Can you give us some idea about the numbers? I set things up that the rejections I didn't see, I wasn't interested, so I just set up Google filters so that the emails were just like automatically deleted with unfortunately keyword or whatever it was dude what if you got a job which was like
1: unfortunately for the other candidate james you are hired (laughs) you know
0: i think they would probably pick up the phone but that's that's you're serious about that like you set up a filter in your inbox just to like absolutely because i was sending out a lot of applications like 10 a day at one point and i didn't really need my inbox clogged up with rejections you know I don't need to read a rejection email like with a standard format. Why bother? In fact, I you know I have filters set up for tons of stuff. Stuff I will look at later. Stuff I'll never look at. Stuff I'll maybe look at, like Black Friday sales. That can go into a filter. So why not? Maybe it didn't go straight to the bin, but yeah, I put them into a folder where I didn't you know, maybe scan through, flick through, see if anything's relevant.
1: Why were you doing that? Was it because, you know, you can't do much in response to rejection, but there is some good advice, which is like, you know, you can follow up and try and learn more about what to do differently, but you don't have to do that. And it has a limited rate of success anyway people aren't always like forthcoming about the reasons they didn't want to hire you. It sounds like you would rather just focus on the things you can control, which is you know the next job application and the next
0: successful email. Absolutely. I think there is a difference between sending an application and getting a rejection or not getting a rejection. And if you've had an interview and then you get a rejection, I would never have an interview and then not follow up on that. Because the number of applications they probably get for... An open position could could be in the hundreds, probably thousands sometimes. However, the number of applicants they will spend time interviewing is an indication that they see some potential in this applicant. Actually, I only have had three interviews, like three companies that interviewed me. In the first one, I absolutely tanked, and it was embarrassing, and it taught me a lesson that you need to be prepared. Uh, And if if you want me to talk a little bit about that, I will and then the second experience I had was good but it was a very small company and I didn't have enough experience with what they were working on but I did pursue that one quite a lot afterwards to try and find out where I was lacking and then the third one is the job I actually got I had several rounds of interviews with the same company, but it was only the third company that I interviewed for that I got the job. Over
1: what period of time did these three interviews happen, by the way?
0: Was it like back-to-back
1: almost, or was there more of a gap?
0: I think over a course of about three or four months,
1: I would say. That's really good to know, because... This is sometimes how long it takes. And I think that's important for people to hear. I'd actually love to learn more about this first opportunity because it sounds like something you were interested in, but your prep just wasn't quite
0: there. I think the first one I had a technical task to do during the interview. However, I wasn't really prepared for a technical task and it was just thrown at me and I panicked. You got blindsided a bit. I did and I choked. I literally panicked and choked. It was basically one of the simple coding exercises that you get thrown with interviews, sort of, uh, if it's divisible by three, print four, if it's divisible by five, print bar. Fizzbuzz. Yeah, right, Fizzbuzz, right. And I I completely choked, I screwed it up, and I (laughs) sent the browser into an infinite loop. Craft You have to laugh, don't you? That's brilliant. It is. And you know what? And I felt such a fool afterwards. At the time, I'd been doing a lot of stuff with React and I hadn't done much and like vanilla JS for a while. There's no excuse, really. And I thought to myself afterwards, you know, what on earth happened there, James? You know, why did this happen? You you know this, you can do this, but you just, you panicked. So that was bad, but a good lesson. Never assume you're not going to be asked for a technical... <laughs> <laughs> task,
1: I suppose. Do you think that preparing would have made you less likely to to choke? Essentially, as, as you describe it. By the way, I just think there's enormous pressure in any job interview, and this was your first technical one, right? So it's not actually surprising that it was easy to overthink things and maybe overlook the simple solution, which you you obviously knew. I'm just wondering, like, what changed about your mentality going into the second and third interviews? After the first
0: interview, the next day, I did two things. I went onto YouTube and I started live streaming me attempting to solve some code challenges, like CodeCatan or whatever, one of these websites. And I knew no one was watching. But the fact that I was live streaming it meant somebody could be watching. So that made it a bit different. So I'm actively saying to myself, okay, here's the problem. What do I need to do? Can I make this work? Imagining that someone was watching me was a really good thing because that's what killed me in that first interview. I'd never had anyone watch me live code anything. And that's what freaked me out. I still today, if anyone's watching me code... I type the wrong stuff, which I do not do. It's human nature though.
1: If somebody's watching me type my bloody email, I scramble it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, oh my God, what my smart idea to live stream and put yourself in front of an audience or even if you weren't looking at the viewer count, uh, you don't always get like a bunch of viewers when you do your first live stream. Still, just knowing that this was probably in front of people uh, very much mimicking the experience of an interview.
0: Yeah, and that really helped me and I kept doing it for about a month. Like every day I would do 10 minutes or something. Yeah, occasionally people went, oh, that's cool, nice. But also, you know, the experience was very good because I lost that, oh my God, people watching me code i'm terrible imposter syndrome i can't do this kind of thing and i was like okay maybe i don't have the best solution do you know what maybe someone will come in and tell me about a better solution that's a good thing i'll learn something you know just to try and chill out of it like the perfect is the enemy of the good and that is something which like oh i don't have the best solution to this problem therefore what i write is rubbish that's not true working code is good code and that is something I learned from that experience. I also think solving a
1: problem in front of someone, as weird as this might sound, it's kind of intimate because you're showing your thought process. If I'm coding by myself, or more likely these days actually writing, because I write a lot of content on the Scrimber blog, link in the show notes, by the way, you know, if I'm embarrassed of my drafts, and like, sometimes I have the weirdest processes to get to the perfect text, at least in my view, you know, like I'll write it as a list and make it a paragraph. I'll write some gobbledygook and then try and refine it. And with coding, it was similar, you know, like I'd call my variables x, e, y, foo, bar, has whatever, you know, make it ugly. And even though I arrived at a solution in the end, it's hard not to want to perform a little bit and sort of, you know, impress them with your speed. But actually probably the point of the interview is to get an insight into how you think, because if your first instinct is, oh, I'll Google this thing, that's obviously fine. There are many times where you should, and you can benefit from Googling a snippet, but there won't always be a snippet available for the thing you're trying to solve. And so kind of working through the code a little bit, I think it's what they want to see. And it's sometimes helpful to remind yourself that nobody loves to be watched to code really unless they're very comfortable with it due to practice and experience. Maybe they live stream, James, like you did, um, and they're very used to it. You know, they might not be going so hard on you because they know how it feels.
0: One of the things that I found most useful as well is explaining your code to other people. This concept of rubber ducking, particularly when you've got a problem, the idea is that For those who aren't familiar, that you have someone standing behind you and you just explain what the problem is and where you've got to to solve the problem. And they just nod like a rubber duck. And you don't even literally need a person there at some point. You can just explain it, verbalize it. And this magical thing happens quite a lot where you go, oh, I assumed something to be true, which isn't true. And that's where the problem is. And yet you've stared at that code for an hour and not been able to get to the solution. However, that just the process of explaining it and going step by step gets you to the fix. And that is a beautiful thing and very, very valuable. So I would say that having someone to talk about that, you know, coming back to what I mentioned earlier with, with some of the other people, the students from Scrimba, when I was able to talk to them about a problem and explain the problem, that was. Extremely valuable. I don't think you have to necessarily have a solution. Often it's enough to just explain the problem and then to go, hmm. You know what? Let's work on this together, guys. Let's find it out. I do that today. So I do a lot of pair programming with some of the senior devs in my company. And those are the best experiences I have in my working day. Initially, I was like, oh, my God, they're going to figure out I'm just an idiot who knows nothing. And then I was like, you know, embrace my ignorance and say, I don't know. I know stuff. I know what I know. And you know what? I'm not going to learn if I say I know stuff I don't know. So. I'm going to ask the dumb questions and and just be that person who says the things maybe not everyone else wants to say, but perhaps are thinking. That's a great way to learn.
1: I really appreciate your transparency. And I think it borderlines on a little bit of vulnerability as well, because, you know, you're telling us the things that you struggled with, like wondering if the senior developers might oust you, for example. And it sounds to me a lot like imposter syndrome. And I'm just wondering if this is something you've uh, you've experienced and how do you think about
0: it these days completely and the senior developers i've spoken to also say we well, still feel it you know you can't know everything and we have to google stuff And I look up stuff in CSS Tricks and like, I've been a developer seven years. You know, you can't know everything. There's always new things coming out and that's just how it is. But like, It strikes me that
1: you were teaching other people and you probably saw students come in with no knowledge and you'd never think badly of them because you just know they haven't been taught something yet. And yet you probably weren't as kind of yourself, it sounds like.
0: Completely. I mean, if you're teaching someone and also that's something else. I did quite a while I taught coding to students online, you know, like children, and so basically HTML, CSS, a bit of JavaScript, and um, what I was always interested in as a teacher was the thought process. I'd like to know your approach to this problem. Where are you seeing the things that need to be fixed here? Perhaps you're way off base, and you're thinking about the wrong problem, and maybe I can refocus you on, on the problem with certain questions, and... Again, some of the nice senior developers here have done that and asked me to sort of think about this issue. And, well, you know, okay, that's an interesting solution. But if we did this, what about this? Ah, very good point. Yeah. So I think if you're a good like mentor or teacher, what do you want to call it, you are good at getting the student to focus on the the right question and solve the right problem. And that's, I think... A valuable way to learn. Coming back to the job you ended up
1: getting, were you looking for any specific sort of company or were you just kind of applying for everything? Because I happen to notice that the company you interviewed with and now work for, they're very much focused on having a positive impact on the environment and reducing things like climate change.
0: I was looking for any job. I think if you are a first-time developer, you, you can't be that picky. You have to see what's on offer and you have to be enthusiastic for the opportunities that are there. That's just the nature of the market. But it doesn't mean you can't hope for something better. And also, I think you stand out as a candidate if you are actually genuinely interested in what the company is doing. And for me, I've worked for a long time in political development I've always been very interested, basically, sort of around democracy and sort of trying to strengthen sort of democratic values and, and so forth. So I've always been very interested in how you can achieve change. So that, to me, was very attractive when I saw a company that is pursuing the most challenging and difficult technical problem of our time, which is, you know, how to fix the environment and that was i think something that came across you know when i got into the interviews i could talk about this with confidence because i was genuine and i think that's what comes across more than anything like okay if you're going to work for a I don't know, a bank or something, perhaps they don't really care about anything beyond your technical ability and, and your ability to fit into the team. But if you are going for a mission-driven company and, you know, there's quite a lot of startups in the space, then I do think they really want to see some commitment to what they're doing. And for me, that probably was the clincher that I was genuinely committed to this range of products actually that we're making. So the short answer to this is you have an advantage over other candidates if you can demonstrate genuine interest and commitment to the company you're working for or who you wish to work for, let's say. They see it like people see stuff. You're not going to convince anyone with insincerity. People have very good senses with that sort of thing, right? I can tell it a mile away if somebody's not interested. It's obvious. But when someone's genuinely committed to something, I think they will say, okay, maybe he's lacking this technical skill, let's train him up, but you know, we see potential. It's the reason they hired me, they saw potential, they didn't see a wonderful sort of sparkling career of coding uh, development behind me, but they saw, okay, this guy, yeah, he's good, he can, he can do it, but he's also committed to this company, and he's committed to the cause. And ultimately for me, I'd like to spend my career working for positive change, not just money. Because ultimately money is just like stuff and I would prefer good things for the world when all said and done. And if I can use my technical skills, which I have developed and continues to develop to make the world a better place, my goodness, you know, that's got to be a life well lived, right? And that's the kind of
1: motivation that burns slow, but it burns long. I think most employees, whether they're juniors or seniors, they really hit their stride after, you know, anytime over a year, once they've learned the ins and outs of the company, the values, and they've, you know, learned the code base, for example, you know, why would you then want to hire somebody who quits after a year only after you've invested in them? Like, I think it's super important for employers to see a logical path as to why you might stay at the company for a long time. My key takeaway, though, from everything you're telling me, from you know just now and earlier in the interview, is that there are like three important things when it comes to getting hired as a developer. Are you ready for this, James? Go ahead. Well, yeah. The first thing you pointed out is coding, uh, which makes a lot of sense. But you you describe the next two things as having equal, if not more, gravitas. The second thing is personality. You mentioned that before. So having good communication skills, humility, a willingness to learn. And the third thing you described as something that really made a difference in you getting a job with this company is like a shared value. Uh, you believe in their mission. And when you have personal values and a company has values and they match, that's what we typically describe as culture fits. And it only goes to prove that, it's not about hiring the best candidate. It's about hiring the best candidate for that particular role in that particular company. Like what you're trying to do when you're looking for a job is you're trying to find a good fit and that hasn't got everything to do with coding skills. Of course, you need the competence, right, to get started. But you don't have to be the final product at this stage when you're a junior. Uh, You can demonstrate potential, as you described, James.
0: Completely. I think that's an excellent summary. I would say the most important thing of all of those is humility. Being honest about what you know and what you don't know is actually really important because I can tell you a senior developer can look at what you've written and know exactly what you know and what you don't know within seconds. So don't bother to try and pretend. Be honest about what you don't know and you know, be confident in what you do know and be prepared to ask for help and say, I don't know this, I'd like some support here. And do you know what? If people ask you directly for support on a specific thing, it's almost impossible to say no. And people want to help, you know, particularly senior developers who are experienced and wise and knowledgeable. They will also do it. And then also, here's a fascinating thing when you see, you know, you work on a problem, the senior developer, and they go, Well, I don't know. You know what? This one's not going to get fixed today. Let's leave it, do it tomorrow. And that's also a good thing to see. They don't have all the answers, they're not gods. And you know what? Everybody is just imperfect, but we're all trying to get a bit better.
1: Well, tell us about the interview process then. Was
0: it challenging? Yes, it was, for a number of reasons, which is we're based in Norway, where I live. I'm British, but we're based in Norway, our company. Do you speak Norwegian, by the way? Sorry, I'm not going to start speaking Norwegian. (laughs) I speak poor Norwegian. But I didn't find that a relevant factor in the hiring process because it's pretty, pretty, certainly in terms of the tech team, it's pretty uh, distributed. Like nationality and our working language is English, say. Some of the people on our team speak no Norwegian. I speak okay Norwegian, but I don't use it on a daily basis, to work. But it's you know useful now and again. But all the interview process was in English. I had the initial interview and that was a sort of just 15 minute kind of interview where I got the feeling they were talking to a lot of people in those short 15 minute slots what were they trying to find out in that 15 minute slot I think it was just okay you send us a CV are you the actual person that is the CV because you would be you probably wouldn't be surprised but sometimes people claim to live in a place they don't live in and they just have to check the fundamentals right this person is actually who they say they are and they do know what they're saying in terms of their basic competency here like they do know what JavaScript is.
1: And they probably want to check for like you have the right to to work in that country, for example, as well. Just quite, you know, administrative things.
0: Absolutely. You know, if they say they're going to give Visa support, then by all means go ahead and apply. But I wouldn't waste people's time with spurious applications claiming you have residency if you don't that country.
1: Another thing I've experienced is the recruiter at the beginning talking about salary expectations, because from their point of view, if your expectation is so far from what they're offering, it's It's kind of a waste of time to go through the whole interview process even if you're successful because you just will be too far apart
0: luckily with my company we set our salaries based on what we say we need so we don't set our salaries based on the industry averages exactly like that we have an upper limit because we're kind of a sustainable company we're not we're not in a race to sort of push salaries up all the time. We ask employees to tell us what they need for their, whatever their lifestyle and their right aims and ambitions are, which, uh, so that discussion actually for me came at the end after I got the job, not at the beginning. That's very interesting. For most companies, that would be a strange approach. What was the second phase of the interview process? So the second phase was the technical challenge. I was given like a Figma design and I was given a bunch of boilerplate code and and then asked to make a react implementation of a basically a module like a component and they said do that Uh, spend no more than two hours upload your code to github and share it with us and please show your commits and then we'll review that and if we like it we'll invite you to an interview to talk about your process here.
1: This must have been a bit of a relief. There was no need to code in front of someone in that case.
0: That was wonderful from my point of view. And uh, I will be honest, I spent slightly more than two hours on it. I was making the commits. I was pushing stuff. They could see my process, you know, but I was also honest about that in the review. Maybe I'm
1: wrong, but you sound a little bit sheepish about it. Like, why shouldn't you spend more than the allocated time on the project?
0: So I would say that there is this Particularly when you're a junior and you're inexperienced, you spend more time doing stuff than more senior developers. And because there's so much baked in knowledge, and you've got to research stuff and you've got to look stuff up sometimes. I was asked to do something which I was familiar with, but not super familiar with. And yeah, I probably could have said, OK, two hours and I'm done. But, you know, I decided to finish the module I was working on in order to put my best foot forward. You know, I think it paid off. I got the the third interview, you know. You know, there is this temptation
1: to impress and, you know, more time you spend on it, probably the better it's going to be. But on the other hand, the downside, I think, is that if they expect you to do it in two hours, say you do it in five, they're going to like have a false expectation of your pace when, yeah, junior developers sometimes need a bit more time to, to do something. And I think that can be a trap actually, because say you get the job and then you're like always behind on your deadlines or something because they assumed you're faster. That's just not a great way to start things off. But at the same time, I think if you do want to spend a bit more time on it and be forthright about that, you know, you're always selling yourself in a job interview. And this is you saying, hey, you know, my name's James, I'm going to spend two and a half, three hours on this let me tell you, but I'm going to be, I'm going to be forthright about that. Hey, but check it out. Like it's good, right? I'm sure you, you know, maybe you like it enough that me spending an extra 45 minutes an hour on this is, is agreeable.
0: Exactly. And that is exactly what happened in the third interview where I said, you know, I spent more time on this, but I wanted to finish the job. And for me, it was an interesting problem, which is true. I wasn't lying. I, I actually enjoyed solving the problem and I wanted to continue working on it beyond the two hours. And I said, this is a fun problem for me to deal with. I wasn't just doing this for the dream. I was doing this because it's great fun experience learning for me anyway. So, I decided to get it done. So, I think if you're honest, no problem. If you're genuine and you're clear, and as I say, you know, they could see when I was making the commits, they could see when I was pushing whatever. There was a, a track record there. I wasn't I wasn't hoodwinking anyone by pretending to be quicker than I was. If you're honest and upfront, that pays off.
1: Was there any more of a technical aspect to that? If I was just to hazard a guess, oftentimes once you've done a take-home task and discussed it, they're really just sort of sizing you up to see if your personality is conducive to being successful as a junior, humility and all that, and also just understanding a bit your motivation to to work at the company. Was there anything else to that interview that we're missing?
0: Yeah, so as I said, the third interview was a reflection on the technical task. That interview was very good for me, actually because then I was able to talk with them about what I found the difficulties with the task and what I found good with the task. And that is where they were assessing, you know, anyone could have sent the code in that I sent in. So they wanted me to actually talk a little bit and explain a little bit about my process and just be sure, again, that I did write this code and I did send this code and I know what's going on here. So... That I think it's important to validate cuz you know I was doing all these interviews over the internet we weren't physically meeting and I think after that then that's when I had the fourth interview which was the culture fit interview which was the longer one that was like so all these interviews I'm describing beforehand were like the 15 minute ones I think those short interviews are just validations saying okay this person is who they are this code is written by them they do know what they're doing they do know what they're talking about and then the culture fit interview was like the fourth interview and that's when the HR like the human resources people came in and those were the the longer interviews. So the, the longer interview, let's say. The fifth one, what was that about? That was kind of a we think you're the right fit let's just check not exactly we're going to make you an offer but I got the feeling that the offer was in the offing and they just wanted to be sure that they had made the right decision so I'd say in terms of like the most relevant interviews probably the fourth one was the most in-depth one and that's where we went into culture and expectations and you know talked a little bit about that thing that you talked about earlier with the imposter syndrome how do you handle problems that you can't fix yourself and where do you go for support and what's your approach that and then what's your self-motivation in terms of getting tasks done self-management stuff you know that is where the human resources were very keen to make sure that this person can work within the like self-management system that we have and I don't think that system works for everyone. Some people need direct tasks. They can't self-manage and they need someone on the back. Fair enough, really. Right? Like, there's nothing wrong with that at all, actually. No, but if you want to work in a very hierarchical company where that is the system and you feel secure and safe working in there, and that's great. Absolutely good for you. But this is not the company I was working for, and it's not what works for me. I like the freedom. I like the hang on. I, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole for an hour and investigate this little thing, which may be small. But, you know, I'm going to do it, and that is my kind of self-management. I will get the task done, but... I'm gonna spend more time than perhaps someone would say strictly necessary.
1: No, totally. I mean, I remember when I started my career, I always wanted to be responsible for my projects. And that meant two things. Like, yeah, the responsibility, like I have to deliver, but also I like the autonomy to deliver it the way I want to and to self-manage in many ways. That suits me really well. It sounds like it does you too, James. I mean, if I'm being very honest, like I used to not really understand why people would want to be tasked with things, but over the years I've realized just absolutely how valuable it is to have both because in a lot of ways you make up for each other's weaknesses, no matter how you like to work. You can be a massive value to a team I want to hear James where were you when you heard the news that you got this job and how did it make you feel how did the news come to you
0: I was in the I was in the supermarket shopping when I got an email on my phone I was like uh dear James blah blah we blah. would like to make you an offer I like uh. it was so funny I was so excited the funny thing was I didn't even read the email and I felt like a fool afterwards because they, they like they sent me an email sort of saying please review this contract and uh, blah 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 and I just immediately replied saying yes I accept the job oh James and then I was like uh, I just read this email properly five minutes later yes I will send you all the information sorry I'm rather excited they love that actually they're like no it's wonderful to see the enthusiasm We we sort of obsess about little things that really don't matter and sometimes it's hard because you you get self critical like oh every little thing I say and do matters it really doesn't focus on the things that really do matter it's sort of slending a slightly embarrassing Email, Eh, whatever. Was this the
1: email where you had to discuss salary and stuff, or maybe that was part of the fifth interview we just didn't quite get
0: to? That was actually part of the fifth interview. That was where I was asked to present salary expectations and sort of salary needs. And as I said, my company is a bit different in that they ask you to not come with a figure, but like not exactly a justification. It's not like that, but it's more like, you know, what do you need to whatever lifestyle you're living? You know, what do you need to make that work? Can I be honest? I really don't like the sound
1: of that. (laughs) I understand where they're coming from. What you need is a salary that's good enough to allow you to lead a happy life where you can bring your best self to work. And obviously somebody with a mortgage and kids needs more money to sustain a similar quality lifestyle to somebody in their 20s, right? But I'm in my 20s. I started my career when I was 20 or something and I brought a lot of ambition and experience to the table and I just, I want to get paid what I perceive to be fair and equal based on my efforts and work. And I I don't think I would get along with that sort of justification, but there's a chance as well I'm not quite understanding how it works.
0: Yeah, so I would say there's a reason not many companies do this it can lead to unfairness and we actually have a system whereby we have a maximum salary and you you can apply for the maximum salary so developers or whatever have a specific salary range that we expect them to be in you can basically ask for less and they can ask for more So that's the way that we work it. However, this is not a one-way street. We don't do it in terms of you bring your your needs, your wants, and that's that, and then you're expected to work like a dog. No, you can also bring other things to the table like, okay, I also need this time every day to myself. And for example, in our company, we have one hour a day on self development time paid self development time that's clocked in every day you can do whatever you want with that it doesn't even have to be coding it can be if you want i use it to learn skills in the moment i'm like doing a lot of Apollo GraphQL ql stuff so i'm spending time doing that but you know if you just want to learn to play the guitar you can do that for an hour paid every day oh wow that's cool yeah so you know this style of management or not management like self-management you know it is like here's the maximum salary i can get within the market conditions but that means every second of the day i've got a knockout code i've got to perform 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 and if I'm not doing that, people are going to go, hang on, we're paying you top dollar. What's going on here? If you say, hang on, this is a salary which meets my needs, which I want from life, but also in the system of self-management, I'm going to take time to learn things which are good for my career, good for me, good for the company, and good for my mental health and keep me sane. That's a good thing. It prevents burnout. And we know that developer burnout is a major thing, right? If you keep developers knocking out features hour after hour, day after day with no break, doesn't really matter how much they're getting paid if they can't keep the pace up.
1: And the company being like focused on sustainability and climate and stuff like that. Is there an element of like, if you take less salary that affords the company more to then have a bigger impact and get closer to their mission? Exactly. That sounds pretty cool, actually. And, and if you're really focused on getting the max salary... Maybe you're just not a good culture fit, actually. Yeah,
0: exactly. Because ultimately, what are you looking for the max salary for? Ultimately, what is your life's ambition here? We know that sort of the pursuit of endless growth, you know, is the reason that we've got this problem ever-expanding growth is not sustainable and ever-expanding growth in salaries you know you end up with these sort of spikes and troughs you know where they hire in sort of massive bursts and then they have to fire a ton of people when stocks crash or whatever because they have hired too many people with too high salaries because that's what they could get at the time which we're seeing you know we're seeing across the tech sector right people getting very junior people getting hired with massive salaries that to an individual looks wonderful I I fully understand that. Oh, you can make $200,000 with a short experience. That sounds brilliant to people. I completely understand why people will be attracted to that. But at the same time, for the sector overall, let's say maybe we have more, but perhaps less well-paid developers, but there's more of us and more contributing. Personally, I, I would go for the second one. It's still going to be pretty well-paid. It's still a hard technical job. It's not easy. Not everyone can do it. Most people who try don't succeed in this career. It's not an easy job, right? And rather than pursuing that ever smaller number of incredibly well-paid developers, you know, would it not be great to have a larger pool of slightly less overworked developers earning slightly less money? It, in my point of view, I would say, yeah.
1: And actually, James, I think that's a wonderful note to end on. I really appreciate your transparency and perspective on this. And I think it just goes to highlight that there's more to life than even though it might not feel like it when you're searching for your first junior developer job, you might be super excited and even a little bit stressed if you're working alongside some savings or something there's more to life than just work and you have the ability to find the company that suits the lifestyle you want and your personal values maybe it looks like the company James works for maybe it looks a little bit different maybe it's the total opposite but it's all individualistic and that's actually the really cool thing about coding is that there are so many paths into tech and places you can end up James Marriott thank you so much for joining me on the Scrimber podcast
0: thank you Alex it's been a pleasure
2: That's it for this week's Scrimba Podcast. Make sure to check out the show notes for all the resources. If you like this episode, tell somebody about it. If you're sharing it on Twitter, make sure to mention Alex. He does read it all and he usually replies. And also, if you have a particular takeaway from this interview, why not share that as well? If you made it this far, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling super supportive, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on your favorite podcasting platform. I'm your producer. Sir Jan, and we will see you next week.